Hello and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. My guest today is Louise Ashton. Louise was convicted of conspiracy to supply Class A drugs in 2009 and given a 10-year prison sentence in England. She served five years in prison and five years out on licence. Louise shares how she turned a blind eye to her husband selling drugs, thinking it wouldn't impact her, until the police forced entry into her home and arrested her. Louise talks about her time in prison and how she maintained contact with her husband who was in another prison. She also talks about the amount of prison officers who would have inappropriate relationships with prisoners and the impact of prisoners leaving prison without an education. Louise also shares how her conviction still impacts her today due to the Proceeds of Crime Act and some of the work she's done to deter young people in Liverpool from thinking that prison is a cool place to go to. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Louise, thank you so much for joining me today. You spent five years in prison for conspiracy to supply classy drugs back in 2009. And when we spoke before, you told me that you had a really good upbringing. You were a bank manager, but that you ended up marrying a man who was selling drugs. So are you happy just to tell us a little bit about how that came to be, that you met this man and what then happened that led to you being arrested? Yeah, so we just met in a bar on a night out and started dating. I was working for a bank at the time, so my career was doing really well. And then he, at the time, said that he was a heating engineer. He had a van, he was going to work. So at the beginning, I didn't really think anything of it. I was in work, really long days, seeing him with an evening and the weekend. So nothing at the beginning made me think anything otherwise. I'm not sure at the actual point where I started thinking something else was amiss. I couldn't put my finger on that thinking back now but then obviously over time it did become apparent that you know he did have I suppose a lot of cash around him more so than cards and I kind of just didn't really think anything about it I bought a house and obviously we lived together but I didn't see anything I didn't see any drugs I didn't I didn't hear him talking on the phone because, as I say, I was in work all the time, really. So, And then on the weekends, we'd just go on trips or go on night out and he'd have it, he'd see his friends, I'd see mine because we were only young. Well, I was only 23 at the time. So I suppose it just, as time went on, it became apparent, but we didn't really have conversations about it, to be fair. And I just... And knew other girls who were was in the same situation and just didn't really talk about it or think anything was ever going to come to me. But at the time, I just didn't think, just didn't think like that, to be honest. So when you bought a house together, did you know at that point or were you still not sure what was going on? Because I bought the house in my own name. So I wanted to buy a house and we hadn't been together that long, I think about five or six months. So I wanted to buy a house, so I bought the house on my own anyway without him. And then he came to live with me. Okay. And did you say at some point you did begin to suspect that he was potentially selling drugs, but you thought it wouldn't have any implications for yourself? Yeah, so as time went on, yeah, I did obviously know that. But yeah, as I say, I just didn't expect anything to ever come because I know... I knew quite a few people who were in the same situation, not on a ever come to their door. So I just, 
I was just naive thinking that nothing had ever happened to me. It always just happened to him. And how long after you met him was it that you ended up being arrested? It was five years later. So we've been together five years. In the meantime, we got, we'd been married as well. So we got married in 2008 and then 10 months later got arrested. And are you happy just to tell us what the circumstances surrounding your arrest were? What actually happened and, and how you were arrested? Yeah, so it was Liverpool. Liverpool was hosting the MTV Awards and I'd gone to the MTV Awards with my friends and it was, a, it was a Thursday night. So then the next day I was in work. I didn't feel too well in work, so I left work early and came home. And when I came home, so that obviously that was the Friday evening, as I've come into me, to me house, my ex-husband was there with a friend and I just said, I don't feel well, I'm going to bed. So I just went to bed. And then, must have been a couple of hours later, I just heard my phone, my house phone was going, ringing, ringing, ringing. So I was thinking, who's this? So I got up and as I've come down the stairs, literally the police just kicked my door in. And my ex-husband had gone. He'd just gone to get some food. And his friend was still in the house. So obviously they just kicked my door in. And that's what happened. So then obviously there was drugs in the house. So they arrested me and took me. And then I was in the police station for two days, I think, and then they released me from the police station. And at the time, I wasn't well still. I still wasn't well, but and then a, a week later, I found out I was pregnant, hence why I wasn't well. And then I was bailed. And then it must have been about another couple of months later. So I had to go to the police station every month or every week, I think it was, sorry, with me ID and make sure that I was still you know, like, you have conditions to bail. And then about a couple of months later, they came again for me. So they came, I was staying with my sisters and they came for me again. And my ex-husband had gone to Amsterdam in the meantime because he didn't ever get arrested. He just fled the country. So a couple of months later, they came for me again. So I just thought, oh, they've come, they want to speak to me because they can't get hold of him. And then... I was remanded in custody then. I didn't ever get out, so I just waited for them. And then, yeah, I was in the police station, I think, for two days, went to court, magistrate's court, and then they remanded me into style prison. And I was on remand for six months. So a few questions there then. So first of all, I'm guessing you never expected the police to ever come to your house, never mind kick your door down. No, never. I mean, they could have just knocked on the door and opened it. There was just no need to kick it off. You know, it was it was tea time. I don't know why they kicked the doors off, but at the time, that's what they did. But no, I was never expecting that ever, and I would never ever have been in ever before. Only that I wasn't well. I, well, I, I thought I had a hangover, but obviously I was pregnant at the time, but didn't know. So that's probably why I was even in the house. I would never probably have been in the house. Maybe it might have been a different outcome. I don't know. And how did you feel coming down the stairs to see that? Oh, it's the most... I don't think anyone can ever prepare you for something like that. It's really traumatic and it, it is frightening because there's about 20 police officers 
all and you know the I don't think they were armed actually they weren't armed at that time the first time I don't think what it is quite intimidating and the shouting and screaming at you and you just it's not even as if you're doing anything but they're just screaming and shouting and they're just running all over the house so it is really intimidating and scary so they just came back because obviously when they first arrested me then they obviously building a case around things so they're looking further into things so they're looking into your bank account they're looking into your movements obviously they were following me I didn't know at the time they were following me for like a couple of months and I'd flew to Amsterdam to see my husband ex-husband and they'd followed me out there and obviously they'd said that they'd seen him but they, they, they didn't see me with him over there somebody else that they'd seen me with but they were taking pictures of me, they were flat, you know, so, and I was running around the park and they were following me. They were, so they were following me most days, but I was just going to work, obviously, and coming home. I wasn't meeting with anybody or anything like that, but they were just building a case against, because there was a few, a few in the case that they were putting together. So they were building the case, that's why they probably let me go and then re-arrested me. And you said your husband at the time flew to Amsterdam. Why did he fly to Amsterdam and you stay in the UK? What was the situation around that? Well, I'd been arrested and he wasn't at the property at the time. So he wasn't at the property because he'd just left. So he wasn't there. So he just, I don't know if he left the country while I was in prison. I can't, I mean, in the police station, I can't remember. To be honest, when he actually left the country, but he did, he left the country. And then I think, even when I was remanded, he still wasn't, he was still in, in Amsterdam. And I think he was arrested a couple of months into my remand and then brought back to the UK. Okay. So in that time, obviously, you found out you were pregnant. And how was that for you being pregnant while going through all of this? When I was, I was pregnant, but then I was on, I was on bail and then I had a miscarriage. So when they came to rearrest me, I wasn't I wasn't pregnant then because I'd lost the baby. And with your your husband, then you you said he's your ex husband. If you don't mind me asking, what happened there? Was it due to the case and things surrounding that that you then broke up, or were you still together when you were in prison, or what happened? Well, what happened was a year before, twelve months before we were we got married, we were supposed to get married in two thousand seven, and he had a car accident where he had a bleed on the brain. So we had to postpone the wedding for 12 months. And he was never really the same person because when you have a bleed on the brain, it changes. Some, depending on where the bleed is, it can change your personality and can change different things about somebody. So it wasn't until I went away that, I re- that we were still writing and everything. And I went to see him once. I think you're meant to go and see. I think it's every 12 weeks you're meant to go and see if you're married. They're meant to take you internally to, for a visit. But I only had ever had one in five years. And then I met up on a home leave. And it was just, we just come to that. We It was just, we both wanted different things. So it was nothing to do with the case. And I don't blame him at all. Because obviously I've got to be accountable for my own actions. So I would don't blame him. And it wasn't, we didn't get divorced because of the case. We probably just the separation made us realise that we weren't really on the same path going forward. And was he in prison as well then while you were in prison? Yes, he was in prison, yeah. Okay. And is that how, is that what you were saying when you were saying about the 
every 12 weeks. Is that what you were talking about? If you're both in prison every 12 weeks? Yeah, if you're married in the UK, it might have changed now, but in, if you're married in the UK and you're both in prison, you can have an internal visit where one of you goes to the other prison and has a visit. Or obviously with cuts and staff, it's not always possible. So I had one of them in the five years, but then after three years, to the last two years of my sentence, I could start having home leaves and town visits. So we met up on a home leave. So after three years of saving, that's when obviously I seen them properly when we were out and just realised that we both wanted different things. Yeah, that must have been very hard. So you only saw him once in three years, but you were writing to each other, did you say? Yeah, you write to each other, yeah. But I think we didn't have any children, so it's totally different. You've only got really yourself to think about. Um, and I had a good, you know, I've got a good family and a good fr- and friends support. So I always had a lot, I always had a visit every week. So although, yeah, you miss each other, it's more, you probably think more about yourself being in there than some than missing somebody else, to be honest. Yeah. And so you, you served five years, but after three years, you could get home leave. And what about your ex-husband? Was was he still in prison when you got the home leave after three years or what was his sentence length? He got 10 years, six months. So he would have saved three years, three months and then come out on home leave. So the last two years, I think it's actually more now, it's about three or three and a half, but when I was away, it was the last two years of your sentence. And that's obviously, it's not guaranteed. You have to go through a lot of probation, have to go out to your homes and you have to obviously be low risk to the public. So there's a lot of, a lot of things around it before you can get out. And there's not many that come out on time. I was just lucky that I had everything in place for when my time came and I was already in open prison. So I'd been in open prison and had like a lie down of four weeks to get the paperwork sorted. So that when my time came, I was on time. But I think there's about one, I think it's about 2% of prisoners actually come out for the home leaves on time. So I was lucky really that I did have the full two years of coming home. So when you got sentenced then, so you you said that you got sentenced to 10 years, but you only had to serve five how did you feel getting a prison sentence and especially one of 10 years? Well, I just wasn't, we just wasn't expecting it. And obviously I've never been in trouble before. So I was only going from what my solicitor and barrister were telling me. So obviously when you get questioned in the police station, and this is a big misconception around when anyone goes no comment in an interview, I was advised to go no comment. So I've never been in a police station before so my solicitor told me go no comment so I've went no comment through everything but then it gets turned against you because then they say it gives you time to get a story together but that's what you're advised by the the legal experts so my solicitors were thinking it was going to be something around five or six years and I got 10 so they were quite shocked as well even the barrister they were really shocked that I got 10 years first offence but after the sentence, they said that they were making an example of me because I was an educated lady who should have known better. So it actually went against me. But sentencing is a really tough one in this country because 
when you look at the guidelines, especially for drugs, they're so so vast, they're so totally different. So it's hard to say where you think you can only go off what you're told. And they said to me five or six years and I've got a 10 year sentence. So I don't even know. You know, like the media, they stood emotionless, you know, or never blank or they make all these assumptions about someone, but no one would ever know what that felt like. And it's not that I want sympathy off anybody because I don't. It's just no one can ever prepare you for something like that, I don't think. Especially when I got a 10-year sentence, it was nearly double what I thought I was expecting. I just did never think it'd be double figures, ever. I mean, I didn't even think, I always never thought that someone was just going to say, it's all been a mistake and let you go. As crazy as that sounds, it's difficult when you get sentenced. It's hard to process. But then you kind of know where you are. You can kind of work out when you're going to be coming home, when you, there's different things that you can put in place going forward where when you're on remand and you don't know what's happening, it's a little bit harder. Yeah, and can imagine, as you say, you can kind of then begin to prepare your life, whereas when you don't know, it must be very difficult. And I'm just curious, what drugs was it that were in relation to this case? Cocaine and cannabis. Okay. And I'm right in saying that at no point you had anything to do with the drugs. It was just that you were married to a man who was selling them and that's why they did you for conspiracy. Is that right? Yes. So what they say is by by obviously by spending money that's come from drugs, I am actively encouraging my husband to sell drugs. So that's how they, and they were saying I use my house as a drug den um, to store drugs. Although I, d- I still don't totally agree with the full sentence, I do understand it more now. I mean, I wasn't totally naive. You know, I don't don't take drugs and I don't have drugs, but I know a lot of people who do. And I was just under the assumption at the time, supply and demand. I just didn't even really think about it. But then until I went to prison and I did see the effects that, pr- that drugs have on people, a large population of the prison is to do with drugs, whether they're on drugs and committed to crime to pay for drugs or they're in prison for, you know, selling drugs or drugs probably, cases probably take up about 60, 70% of the prison population. So we do understand now the difference in it, but at the time I was young, didn't have kids. Not that that's an excuse. I just didn't really think about it yeah that makes sense as you say if you, if you don't when you're aware of it you can see how dangerous and damaging drugs are and the impact the devastation that it causes our society but as you say some people might not be aware of that so you went to to prison and I know that you went to three different prisons what was it like for you in prison was it a big shock to the system yeah very much so I think the hardest thing is because I felt like I was independent. So I don't, you know, you can eat when you, if you're hungry, you can eat when you want. You can use the phone when you want. In prison, it's regimen. So they tell you when breakfast time is, when you, obviously with work, that's different. You go to work, but like when you can eat lunch, when you eat your tea. So everything's regimented. So it's all that control taken away, which I found the most difficult for me. And obviously the stigma of 
being in prison thinking oh what thinking about when you're getting out even though you're still in there but what people are going to think and say and that you and your family because you're bringing shame on your family really because they're innocent but then you're a product are you a product of of them that's quite difficult and then obviously the people that you meet in prison are probably people that I probably would never associate with a lot of them are all had associated with and it is a massive massive culture shock you know I know people say you get three meals a day you get but it's just not like that at all yeah you do get fed if you can eat, if you can stomach the food at the best of times and again it, a prison is exactly the same as people outside there's still a lot of drug dealing going on there's still some people going to prison would literally what they're standing up in and that's it. So they don't get no financial help from outside. So it's a bit doggy dog. You know, if you put something down, and I mean anything, a pen, paper, anything, it's gone. It is re- It is difficult. It isn't an easy place, but it gets easier as time goes on because you get to know the system and you get to know the working day. And every single prison is totally different as well, would you believe, but totally different. So every time you moved, it's like starting again and getting used to the regime. Yeah, I want to touch on what you'd said about the the people, because you were saying that they aren't necessarily people that you would have associated with on the outside. How do you navigate that? Because the people we surround ourselves with is so important and really influences us as people. So how did you navigate that situation in prison? I mean, it's quite difficult because when you depending on what, what what prison you're in and where you're put. So, for instance, I went to Style and I wasn't I wasn't on any drugs and I wasn't violent. So I didn't go onto a wing. I went onto like a house. So I was sharing a room with three other. So there was four of us in a dorm. So there's no escape. So there's like a downstairs communal living room area with a television. And then you've got, you're sharing a room with three other people so you don't really get any time so you have to at least be a little bit sociable even though you don't want to be and it is very difficult so for instance there's a lot of drug users in prison a lot and I don't mean recreational drugs going out on a night out I mean you know heroin you know addicted to drugs 80% of the female population and it's very hard in the beginning to navigate, but then as you move around and you see there is people similar to me and my background, a few, but not many. But then obviously there's a lot of jealousy and a lot of backstabbing in gale prisons. There's not really fights that you see on the television because that's more the male side. But with women, it's a lot more because obviously you can really tell who's still got money, for instance, and people who haven't. So you can get money sent in off your family and friends and people, some people don't get anything. And people say, oh, everything's free in prison. Well, it's not. You still have to buy your own shampoo, shower gel, cleaning things, you know, like makeup, everything you have to buy in prison. I know makeup's not a necessity, but the likes of shower gel and soap and things are so there's a lot of tension that way because a lot of some people have a lot of things, some people have nothing. So it's very similar to outside, but inside, but you sort of all crammed together. 
And did you have any experience of that? You said that your family were still supporting you in prison. Did you have any experience of people treating you or giving you a difficult time in prison because of you maybe being a bit more affluent than they were? Yeah, you get that. Yeah, I did a lot. People saying things, but it didn't really affect me because I'm quite a strong character in that way. So I wasn't really bothered in that way. But there is a lot of people who would be bullied for something like that because it is really noticeable for people, you know, I mean, some people don't even have a change of clothes and then they'll get a prison tracksuit, for instance, and that's all they are wearing. And some people can have clothes sent in off the family, brand new clothes. Some people have been in for five years and never had anything brand new. So there is definitely that divide within the prison system, like it is outside. But it just is more apparent inside because it's just so small. So you, you do see it a lot more. And what about with prison officers? So how did you find they treated you in prison? And how was being in a in a prison in general for relationship building and rehabilitation options? Well, rehabilitation, I don't think this country knows what it even means. When you go in, you get a set, uh, like a report and there's certain criteria what you have to do. There was one course that they put me on for the whole five years which was crime in society. That was the course. So it was about, obviously, the victims of your crime. So I used to think, well, I haven't got a victim, but I I did have a victim, but it's more of a wider circle of victims. So people who were on drugs will rob people's houses to get the drugs. So that's like the victims. So that was the only course that I had to do in five years so I could get a job or because I was educated. So the a lot of the prison courses is level two is the highest course unless you get funding for like open university and that type there is other things that you can do but it's outside of the prison that you have to apply more so than what the prison actually can teach you so I only had to do one course but I just done loads of different things because I'm just not one of them to sit around and this is real bugbear in mind with the prison and education because when you go into prison there's a lot of people who can't read or write but they get more money to work in the kitchen than they do to go to education so they'll go they've come in with nothing so an extra four pounds a week to someone who hasn't got anything they're going to go for that so they'll go and work in the kitchen and they don't do any education so they go out in the world when they're released and they still can't read and write So the whole system is broken. But for someone like me, I had a degree. So I just done lots of courses and I always got a a good job, as we say, a good job in prison, but a decent job with, with higher wages because I had an education and I was a bit more trusted. That's what I was seeing as. So I had quite a few different jobs within the prison in style, but then obviously you move one out. I moved on. Prison officers, I could be here all day. It, different prisons run totally different. I had a really difficult time in style because the prison officers are horrible. And that is just 95% of them are there to make your life hell. And that's all there is to it. They're really, you know, who says crime doesn't pay? They're quite antagonistic constantly 
daily where you're getting something sent in. They've got something to say. They don't like it. Where when I went to Drake Hall, it was more, they were an officer, you were a prisoner, and that was it. There was no in-between, no one wanted to be your friend, and it was a better relationship for me. I don't want another friend. I just wanted to do my time and get out, and I only used to have to speak to a prison officer if I needed them for something, to ask them to signpost me somewhere what I needed to do. I think I must have wrote a complaint out every week in style about officers. Even though I know it was nothing was going to ever get done, I just couldn't help myself because they were... I just think for someone who's not outspoken or a strong character, I think they would have really struggled because it was it wasn't they're not the nicest of people. But in Drake Hall it was a lot better in terms of they spoke to everyone exactly the same. They didn't want to be your friend, which for me that was better. I can honestly say I think there's about 10% of prison officers in the three prisons that I went to that actually want to work and help you. The other 90% are there to do a job. They hate the job. They hate the hours. You know, it's noticeable in how they treat the women. It's not very good. And the amount of relationships with prison officers and prisoners is astounding in prisons. It is unbelievable. Female, female relationships. Wow. So did you see that in all three of the prisons you were in? Yeah, all three. And was it always female officers or were there some male officers that were engaging in relationships with them? One instance, it was a male, but only once. All the others were women. And how did you know about these relationships? Nothing is private in prison. Nothing is private. You just know. You can just see it. You can see it. And then obviously I was in Drake Hall. I'd been moved. And one of the prison officers from Style came up and proposed to a prisoner. That was it from that we were together. So she'd left the prison service, obviously, because this girl had moved. So you can't, you couldn't take it away from it because she was a newer from Style and she'd come up to another prison and proposed on a visit. It's unbelievable what goes on. You wouldn't think so, but it does. So had she left the prison service, she was no longer an officer and then proposed to a prisoner? I don't know about that one, whether she left before she was pushed. I don't know. But it goes on a lot. And do you, from your personal experience, do you know why this tends to be quite a widespread problem? I don't know. I think relationships in prison are wild. There's so many of women with women in prison and even people who are married and the, I don't know if it's loneliness or the feeling of being needed. I don't know because that was never my way and that I just didn't need that. So personally, I don't know why it happens. I don't know whether they're lonely or, or they do it because, I mean, in female prisons, you're not really getting outside drugs really. Like a man's prison doesn't run like that. I can't really see that many people having. There was a few phones, but it wasn't nowhere near like the male estate. So I don't know why they do it. I don't know whether it's just comfy or just the feeling of being needy. I don't really know why, but it is high. The percentage is definitely high. And with the, the officers, did you know if management or the governor knew about any of these relationships? Yeah, so some would be shipped out once there was any suspicion. They'd be shipped out to other prisons or sacked 
So there has been a couple of people who have been sacked. So we do know that. I think if it if the governors do know, then they would just get rid of them because it doesn't look good, does it? So we don't think they allow it to happen. There's all different instances, so I don't really know. But they don't allow it to go on. I wouldn't say no. Yeah, but it's concerning that there are so many relationships happening when officers are there to care for the people in the, in their custody. They obviously, it's concerning that this is happening. Yeah. I mean, prisoners are classed as vulnerable, aren't they? But they're not all vulnerable. Yeah, they are to a certain extent, but they're not because they also know what they're doing. So there's a lot of them who would manipulate a member of staff because not every member of staff is a strong member, you know, everyone has, some people have issues at home that they don't want to bring to work and something might be going on. So, you know, don't blame them. There's definitely prisoners who manipulate the situation for their own gain. And it just happens to be a member of staff. Yeah, and that's why it's so difficult probably for staff where you said that in Drake Hall they kind of kept their distance and it's a difficult balance between officers wanting to build a rapport with people in prison and help them turn their lives around but as you say they're then also open to manipulation which can really have a detrimental impact on their life. Yeah definitely definitely it works both ways so I know people say you know we're the well the people in prison are the vulnerable ones but sometimes they're not always as vulnerable as people would say. Definitely not. So from your experience then, so you're obviously educated already. For the people in prison who couldn't read or write, of course, there needs to be more incentive to get them into education rather than getting them a job. Because when they leave prison, having some sort of education is going to help them move forward in life. But for somebody like you, so you did that course, which sounded like it would have been helpful. But what else do you think would have helped you in prison to turn your life around? Was there anything that stood out for you that really helped you? No, I think it was more, it wasn't about when you're in prison, you're not thinking about turning your life around as such. It was more, what do I need to do to get through every day? So I was more, it was more of how do I get through this? How do I get through the next three years and still be sane? So I wasn't really thinking about when I got out at that point while you're in there, especially when you've got so long to do. I was classed as a long-termer with a 10-year sentence, so anything over seven is classed as a long-term. So I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do when I got out because I just thought, I'll do anything. I'll always get a job. So it wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that. It was more, what can I do to get past my time? I couldn't just sit, go to work, come back, watch the television. That's just not me. So I needed to do something that was going to keep my mind active. So when I went to Drake Hall, there was definitely more opportunities for different types of courses than there was in style. Because style is a remand prison, so you're always going to get more opportunities. And for me, the gym was my escape. So I got a job in the gym and done every gym course there was. And then we applied. There was three of us, three prisoners who applied for a level three diploma, which no one, you don't want me to do a level three in prison. So we done that. We got the funding ourselves and then we done that with the prison officers. 
the gym officers so they also done it with us so there was the four prison officers and three so we done the level three diploma with them and then we used to take there was a couple of us who took the classes for the prisoners so we took gym classes we took staff classes and then we also done there was officers who every year they have to take a fitness test so there was a lot of officers who for medical reasons or who was who weren't passing the fitness test so we had to we used to get them fit to pass the test so they could keep the job so the gym was just an escape for me and it just got me through my time so I'd just done every single course that I could do until I went to open prison and was able to go to college outside so you can apply to college outside once you're in open so I'd just done every course available that I could do to get me it was I wasn't thinking about getting out and what I can do then it was more just getting by yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then I want to talk about when you came out of prison. And firstly, before we go on to talk about the, the work that you do now, I'd like to talk about the, the Proceeds of Crime Act, because I know that that applies to you. Are you able to just explain to people who don't know what the Proceeds of Crime Act is and what that means for you now that you're out of prison? Yeah, so the Proceeds of Crime Act was brought in, I think, by Margaret Thatcher, and it was to recoup any money that you made from crime. So for me, I had a benefit figure. So proceeds of crime can be horrendous. And if you've got proceeds of crime, you can never, ever, ever move on fully. So for instance, for me, I had a benefit figure. So they took every piece of jewellery, no matter how you bought it. Even if you could prove it was bought by your family, they take everything, take all the money in your bank, take your house, and then that you have a benefit figure which they which runs for you for life. So if you get an inheritance, they'll take it. If you win the lottery, they would take it. If I bought a house now and in 10 years wanted to sell my house and move, but I'd made a profit, they would take that as well. Even though you've worked and put that money in from legitimate means they would still take it so that's for life so you can never fully move on because of the proceeds of crime act in terms of it will always be there unless you pay every penny off so what's the figure for you then is it is it half a million pound is that right half a million yes so for instance there was 10 of us on our case so the drugs came to two hundred thousand, and they 10 years get two hundred thousand benefit figure People say, well, that can't be right, but that's how they do it. So even though they were only worth 200,000, they want 200,000 off 10 years forever. It's absolutely mind-boggling, but that's what they do. So yeah, mine is hot. That's what they want. Well, it was half a million minus whatever they took, which was probably about 70,000 in total, I think. So it's like 430,000, what they still want off me, what they said that I've earned. So that means that... Until you've given them back 430,000, you'll never be able to profit on anything. Yes. As you say, it impacts you for a very long time, if not your entire life. So we say that prison is the punishment, but actually in your case, prison was only part of the punishment because you're still being punished every day for what you did. Yes. And then even when, 
So now my car insurance is nearly double what it should be because I have to, I've been to prison. Home insurance is nearly double than what I would pay if I was hadn't been to prison. Now, I don't know how that can impact why I have to pay more for my car insurance, my home insurance than someone else would have do for life because I've always got to declare that I've got a criminal record. Do you have to do it for your mortgage as well? Did you tell me that your mortgage is higher as well? Yeah, so you will, if you get a mortgage, someone who would apply for a mortgage, there's, I think there's three lenders who will lend to an ex-offender. So it's not, it's not an easy ride for someone to get out. I'm not saying that because I want sympathy off anybody because I don't. I don't need sympathy off anybody. And people say, well, you've done the crime. But yeah, I have. And I've done the time. But I'll still be punished every single day. In terms of having to pay more and certain things like that. But I don't think, I personally don't think that's right. Yeah, especially when they do say that prison is the punishment and people get a second chance after prison but you're not really getting a second chance or it's certainly not a fair second chance. I want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing now Louise because it seems very impactful. So last time we spoke you were telling me about the high crime rate in Liverpool and that a lot of children are not scared of prison because of how the media portray it. Are you able to just tell us a little bit about the situation in Liverpool and the work that you're doing in that area? Yeah, well, I think Liverpool is quite an anti-establishment city and it probably always has been. And I don't think kids now don't see prison as a deterrent. I'm not talking about every child, but I'm talking about a lot of children that I come across or work with. They don't think prison's a deterrent. And I do blame the media a lot for it. They get PlayStations, they get this, they get that. They make it like it's an easy ride. And they don't seem to be scared of the police either. It's like they're not really that bothered in certain areas anyway. And it's really difficult to, you know, to sit them down and explain that prison isn't always, it's not easy in terms of, and it's not supposed to be easy, but I think people make it sound like it is. You know, they get three meals a day, they get the PlayStations. But for, you know, a child probably who comes from maybe, you know, not the best of upbringings or they live in a three-bedroomed house and there's six siblings, five or six siblings, for instance, the sharing rooms, you know, they haven't got much money if they're from a single-parent family. Them kids might think, oh, it's not that bad. You get you get a PlayStation, you get this, you get that. Because that's a lot of the schools that are working. That's what the kids say to me. So it's trying to educate them that that isn't, yeah, you get a PlayStation if your mum and dad can send you one in. So can your mum, well, I've got a PlayStation. You might have. However, you can only have a brand new one. So not everybody would be able to send, for someone who went to prison, especially if they were young, the families just wouldn't have another £550 to buy a PlayStation to send them it in. How is the family, if they're based in Liverpool and they're sent to Nottingham, how's the family do do your parents drive? No. How are they getting there to come and see you? It's it's not as black and white as people, as kids think, especially. So we do work in schools and they're trying to explain about prison and it doesn't just impact your life when you're in prison, but it can impact your life when you come out of prison because it shouldn't be seen as cool 
and it shouldn't be seen as something that you can brag about for a young person. So I try and we, we do the workshops that we do. We try and explain to them the difficulties that you will get in prison and then in time to come when you want to settle down and have a family and kids now can be going on Google, can be looking at your picture. You don't want your kids to be finding out things about you. There's a bigger picture to it. So we try and work with them and explain and try and get them to see that it's not the best way and they're not, not a good path to go down. What incredible work that you're doing. And it's amazing that you've managed to take your own experience and you're now trying to give back and help the younger generation. My last question for you is, from your time in all of the prisons, what is the number one thing that you think needs to change to make prisons places of growth for not only the people who are in prison, but also for prison officers? Well, definitely education. See, it's hard because without prisoners, prisons wouldn't run. So if you don't have people working in the kitchen, the prison, there's no way they're going to be able to get the food done, the food prepped and cooked for all the prisoners. They're not going to be able to maintain the gardens. They're not going to be able to have everyone's washing being done. So there's a, without just talking about throwing money at these big super prisons, we need to fix the broken system that we've got. So we need to, anyone who goes into prison who hasn't got a level two or even level one English and maths, that should be, until they get that, they shouldn't move out of education. I personally don't think. How are we allowing people to, to leave prison who don't read and write coming in to go out exactly the same? I think we need help with the system when they get out because obviously if you haven't got somewhere to stay and you're going to the hostel, then you're waiting for you, for people who are, on, who are going to go on benefits, who haven't got any family members to help them. They're going to wait eight weeks. So they've got no money for eight weeks. So what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to commit crime. So there needs to be, we need to start from scratch. And we just need to scrap the whole system I've got got now and start again. Because rehabilitation does not exist. We need education. People need to be able to read and write to be able to at least be given a chance. And there needs to be, you know, a better system of when people are getting out to going to get a place to stay money in terms of and I don't just mean everyone giving them loads of money but they need to be able to have food to eat I think education is definitely the main one that needs to be looked at with prison officers I don't really know where you'd start with them really it probably isn't an easy job for them either you know they probably have a totally different outlook than what I've got how would you know from an interview if someone's got empathy for some for people and to see the bigger picture and it's difficult isn't it because I do think there's certain crimes that are more socially acceptable than others and then is that if I think that would they be thinking that as well so I don't think it's an easy job being a prison officer either I don't know what you do with in terms of how you would but there definitely needs to be more prison officers I know in the male estate especially they're locked up a lot more. I don't think, you know, what it, that's not rehabilitating anyone at the three, a 23 hour day bang up is not rehabilitating anybody. 
So the system needs to change. I do think from what I've heard, I do think that you are trying to change, but I just don't know if it's ever going to change to where it's going to be a success. Well, thank you so much, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and you've taught me a lot. I have no doubt you've taught the listeners a lot and I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Before you go, it would mean a lot to me if you would follow my podcast on whatever platform you listen, rate it and even leave a review. I always love to hear from you regarding what you thought of the episode, so please continue reaching out to me to let me know. All of my links are in the show notes.